The international music industry is in shock with the death of rock star Michael Hutchins. The body of the In Excess lead singer was discovered in a Sydney hotel room late this morning. Police won't confirm the cause of death, but they've taken a leather belt into possession for scientific examination. The Double Bay Ritz-Carlton, the Sydney Hotel to the Stars, where today Michael Hutchins' body was found. Although security at the hotel was kept tight, the world media had been tipped off early. Then came the official confirmation. Uh, the body of an Australian citizen uh, who has been a resident in England for some time was discovered in the hotel on the fifth floor. The body was found just before noon by a member of the hotel staff. They wouldn't rule out suicide. Detectives have taken into possession a leather belt uh, for scientific examination. Hutchins had spent last night in Sydney's eastern suburbs, having dinner with his parents at this restaurant. His father at one stage was holding his hand and he was you could see them, they were just so happy to see their son after a long time probably. And he even said to Susan, one of our waitresses, that he'd be here for one month. Hutchins was in Australia preparing for the in excess 20th anniversary nationwide tour. The band had been in the ABC Sydney studio all week rehearsing. They arrived as normal today waiting for their singer, only knowing that he was missing. The group was eventually told of the death late this afternoon, choosing to stay locked in their rehearsal room rather than face the waiting media. They eventually left the studio one at a time, protected by a private security guard. They were followed by road crew members and associates obviously stunned by the news. The music industry was just as shocked. I was totally taken by surprise. Not in my wildest imaginings would I have thought somebody who had so much to live for would die. To be sitting around uh, the Mondrian pool uh, having drinks and everyone was so happy. I said to Michael, I've never seen you more relaxed, more happier in your life. And he said, I said, I have never been more happier in my life. Police spent most of the afternoon trying to inform Hutchins' family. Late today, contact was made with his Australian-based relatives and with partner Paula Yates, who was understood to have been en route to Australia when the death happened. Phil Kafkaloudis, ABC News, Sydney. At its peak, In Excess stormed the world charts. Nowadays, though, their music has been overtaken by younger alternative bands. Just last month, Hutchins said the band's recent concerts were the best he's ever done. In Excess have been the quintessential Australian band. They formed in Perth in the late 70s, young rockers who worked their way up through the tough Australian pub scene. We all have our wilderness years, whether it's drugs, alcohol, lack of fame, whatever. And then into the time They hit a big in 1987, their multi-million selling album Kick, spawning five top ten singles in the United States. The band toured constantly across the world, performing to record crowds, selling 20 million records. Philip Mortlock was their record company representative during their heyday. Their significance on the Australian music scene is uh, is immeasurable. I mean, they they are they have broken so many records and and they have achieved so many great heights internationally and locally. It's uh, it'd be impossible not to know where to start. Hutchins was always seen as the focus of the band, a truculent rock star with a style similar to that of Rolling Stones lead singer Mick Jagger and the late Doors frontman Jim Morrison. But record sales for the group's style of strident funk rock anthems had fallen in recent years. The critics had dismissed them. The band members became famous for being celebrities, none more so than Hutchins. In recent years, his sex life was more famous than his songs. Romances with fellow Australian pop star Kylie Minogue and supermodel Helena Christensen. 
Two years ago, amid a media frenzy, he linked up with Paula Yates, the former wife of Live Aid star Bob Geldof. And last year, the pair had a child together. Lisa McLean, ABC News. Uh, this is In Excess Access All Areas, episode 168, the one that we probably have been procrastinating for a little bit of time now as the early introduction to this episode typifies. It's uh, the episode where we are going to dive deep into uh, Michael's passing and just the events around it uh, within sort of the, the week week or two leading up and obviously the funeral and uh, coroner's reports since then, B, which... Uh, I guess it's not happy-go-lucky uh, like normal episodes, but as we do this sort of anthology and deep dive, this was one we have to get off our chest. Yes, it's one that we haven't been looking forward to. I'm sure that everybody will join us in um, celebrating Michael's life, but also um, leading up to why this all happened and unraveling it a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the goals of the podcast has always has been loosely to do sort of a, an anthology from the uh, start of the band's career and their inception all the way through to, you know, probably uh, uh, now what they're doing now is a legacy act in terms of their releases. So this particular sort of juncture finds us at November 22, 1997, uh, the infamous day, I guess historically before this date in mind uh, was unfortunately the day that also John F. Kennedy was assassinated back in 1963. It's also the day my stepbrother was ball and it's also unfortunately the day that Michael Hutchins passed away and left this uh, earth so I guess I'd start things off B by just asking you back uh, I guess in the UK um, how did you find out what do you remember where you were and just the the events surrounding it for yourself yes it's all very hazy I don't remember too much because I think I was probably in a little bit of shock maybe but yes I was in London working in London at the time I do remember going past a news newspaper stand and seeing Rockstar Dead, mentioning the hanging, which I hate mentioning. And yeah, just shock more than anything. But my first thoughts were, my God, you know, how's Paula going to react to all of this? Because Mm. both of them have been in and out of and the newspapers and the media, you know, one minute there being a lynch lynch mob happening, the next minute it's a fan club when the baby appeared and they were paying out thousands to get a photograph of the baby. It was just every five minutes they were in the paper and it was like a love-hate relationship with the media. So it's just, I mean, I feel, you know, it was just so sad that it just, mm. like, this couldn't be happening. Mm. Mm. Where were you? Where were you? Well, yeah, uh, and again, look, we've, we've, I guess every year, the last three years, we've uh, had a uh, Remembering Michael type uh, podcast. I guess we're going to go a little bit deeper on this particular one. Uh, For those who uh, have listened to the other ones, we're going to probably unravel a little bit more and and go further. But, um, you know, I did mention, I think, on a a past episode that I was uh, literally returning to work, got to the office, and I'd been out to lunch with a couple of colleagues who were from another branch, and 
Uh, it was weird, and this gives some context to the time uh, of life, B. Uh, remember those phones, landlines? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I don't even think I had, I had a mobile then, nor were mobiles that popular, but uh, uh, I got a call from one of the lunch colleagues who literally I'd seen 10 minutes earlier, and I'm like, what's he ringing for? And he said, oh, we won't be going to the concert. Uh, I said, oh, what, they've cancelled that today? And he goes, no, 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 Michael's uh, you know, oh. passed away, yada, yada, yada. Because he's a bit of a jokester. I, I almost sort of challenged him, you know, don't joke about something like that and then blah, 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 yeah. of which he replies, no joke. Um, I hung up. I then went to turn Triple M, which is our probably most sort of prominent radio station, plays rock music on. I thought, well, if something like that's broken, um, I would probably hear something within the, the next 10, 15 minutes. Uh, so I turned the radio on and Beautiful Girls being played and the intro's there and then the uh, DJ is sort of announcing that reports were that Australian rock star, blah, 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 and and they sort of said, if it is true, he's a tribute, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, it's like, you know, those worlds all collide at once. It just felt like, oh, my God, a thunderbolt, you know, it's yeah. certainly going through uh, through my system. And um, I was part of a sort of a marketing company group that, that day and we had a lot of our reps coming back the afternoon and, I just remember having to be there, but I remember just sitting in the bathroom, just pondering and pondering, and then I couldn't really go out and face anyone, so I just went home and locked myself in my room for the weekend, and and then had to absorb the whole sort of uh, aftermath, you know, of what was happening in the media and the newspapers and all those sort of things. So, you know, we, we had we we're going to the concerts the next the next week, but uh, yeah, I guess there was uh, in those days with no social media, there were probably more questions to be asked uh, than answers provided. So. It was quite uh, a confronting, you know, 24 hours. Crowds have been gathering at the luxury Ritz-Carlton Hotel in the exclusive Doubleday suburb of Sydney since midday local time when the star's body is understood to have been found hanging. Michael Hutchins was a guest at the hotel and had arrived in Sydney earlier in the week in preparation for a series of concerts celebrating the rock band's 20th anniversary. Police are initially reporting that there are no suspicious circumstances. The police and uh, detectives are still in the room. They are treating it as a crime scene, which they would do with any uh, any suicide. Jackson was among a string of glamorous consorts seen on his arm. Others included the singer and former soap actress Kylie Minogue. But it was his relationship with broadcaster Paula Yates which generated the most interest, resulting as it did in the breakup of her 10-year marriage to Bob Geldof, with whom she had three children. After a well-publicised High Court agreement to separate, Yates and Hutchins swapped homes with Geldof and announced plans to marry this January. Last year, Paula Yates and Hutchins had a child, which they named Heavenly Hirani Tiger Lily. It's not yet clear whether Paula Yates has been fully informed about events in Sydney and her whereabouts remain uncertain. Colin Brazier, Sky News. Joining us from Sydney now is Justin Kelly at the radio station 2UE. Uh, Justin, I know you were there when the police gave, police gave some more details. What can you tell us? Well, this uh, press conference by the police has uh, literally just broken up. They have confirmed that uh, Michael Hutchins was found dead in a hotel room at Double Bay, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, a very exclusive hotel in Sydney's eastern suburbs. He was discovered by hotel staff just before midday Sydney time. It was then that the police were called. They uh, uh, secured the hotel room. Crime scene investigators were also called. It was on the fifth floor of the hotel. 
Um, they have confirmed that he hanged himself and they have t taken into possession a leather belt for scientific examination. Um, so we, we understand that he has hanged himself by the use of a leather belt. Uh, his body has been removed from the hotel under police escort. It went to a neighbouring suburb of Glebe. That, that is where the Institute of Forensic Medicine is set up and uh, there will be a post-mortem examination on Monday to confirm exactly how he died. But uh, the man's relatives in Australia and overseas have been informed and that in fact um, some members of his family from the UK are in fact uh, either preparing to leave for Sydney or uh, already on their way. Uh, the other uh, piece of uh, information that we are told is that drugs were found in the hotel room, although they were prescription drugs. They, uh, they weren't illegal, they weren't narcotics, they were prescription drugs. They would not confirm whether a note has been found. They said that is a matter for the coroner and only he will release that information. There will be an inquest into uh, Michael Hutchins' death um, sometime next year. We are told also that perhaps uh, he may have even been at rehearsals as early as, uh, as this morning. Uh, he was in Sydney, of course. He arrived four days ago for uh, the Sydney leg of his world tour. They had uh, a number of sellout concerts to be played uh, in the next couple of weeks. And um, he was uh, here with his band in excess as part of the 20th anniversary tour. They have dominated world rock charts for the past two decades. Uh, but now already the international reaction is one very much of shock that uh, a man uh, only in his mid-30s has taken his own life. Uh, Justin, I know that the rest of the band were at the ABC studios across Sydney um, during the morning. Presumably they've been informed of this news. Yes, they have been informed. We haven't actually had any uh, reaction from the other five band members, but um, they are a very close-knit group. They have been together through um, some, some tough times over the years, so I know that they will be absolutely devastated by this news. And for you, you, your friends would have known that you were a big In Excess fan. Were they giving you a lot of support? Yeah, look, I think I think I remember kind of my sister coming over the next day and she brought the papers over and just, you know, came and visited me, et cetera. I'm sure my mum, you know, et cetera, they're in a touch base and things. And, yeah, I think my girlfriend at the time and many people around, well, yeah, knew the importance of them to me. I had some In Excess friends that probably I was able to reach out to and uh, I think about a week later we, we caught up at a, a pub in Melbourne, a bunch of us, and uh, there was a few people there as well from from memory that I'd been to concerts with. So, yeah, it was just awful. And uh, I guess, as I said, there was no social media those days. And as you sort of alluded to, you know, with Paula and the paparazzi, that was sort of the the social media of the time, wasn't it? Was, paparazzi, yeah. both pre pre the passing and post. And it's sort of interesting. It ties into sort of that particular year. You know, it was only a couple of months earlier. We'd actually literally lost Diana and, and mm. Dodie Fayed there. And uh, they were the ultimate papst, you know, terms yeah. of couple. Yeah. Um, and then seemed like afterwards, you know, the whole, you know, royal family were papst, which was ironic because they died being papst. Um, yeah. So, but you were there in England at the time. Yeah, I just digress. I'm I'm watching the Robbie Williams documentary at the moment, and the way that he was treated by the press. Also, they they, they you know they doctored photos, and even mm. Michael has mentioned it before. You know, to his mom, mom, you know, they 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 put my hands on somebody else, and I wasn't, you know, and yeah. they, they'd say things out of context, or they'd take a photo and say that that I was upset with somebody when I wasn't, and it was always yeah. the the press. So uh, yeah. Awful, awful, yeah. awful. Yeah. Just and I think, you know, yeah. And I think for Michael, living in London, being under the uh, shadow of Sir Bob and 
uh, it was it was a strange thing for him because he was such a sensitive soul. And um, yes, you know, he 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 and Paula probably in the eyes of uh, morality may have done the wrong thing and in having an affair or whatever. And, and I don't still know the exact timelines on all of that. But um, again, was the response by the paparazzi commensurate with the crime? No, not at all. No. So. So, you know, proportionality in terms of punishing the couple at the time and the hassling for the better part of two, three years was was not proportionate. And, um, yeah, getting back to sort of earlier, you know, that year, we'd, I think we'd lost Diana and, and Dodie, I think Notorious B.I.G. for our rap friends out there, uh, hip-hop friends. Uh, Versace had passed away that year. John Denver had died in a plane crash of his own doing. Chris Farley, Mother Teresa, the infamous Colonel Tom Parker, it was quite a, an array of, of passings. And uh, I know uh, a bit like 2016 and 17, you know, we, we lost Prince and then we lost uh, and Bowie and then we lost you know Tom Petty and we just kept mm-hmm. losing superstar icons. Um, there was this sort of period in 97 where it seemed like, you know, significant uh, people of note uh, were passing and particularly the good ones, um, yeah. unfortunately. Oh, Michael, see, Michael was, um, Michael was a, oh, he's a sweetheart. He was a really great guy, a really gentle soul. Michael, um, Opposite, we're opposite ends of the world, you know, he's some sort of private school boy who's, you know, but he was a, he was a rebel, you know, he, he, was, he used to piss me off though, because, you know, he's one of those guys, I get up in the morning and I have to go up and drag myself, do my hair, you know, so I'd look good to walk out for cameras, and Michael would walk out in his Aaron Williams in a dressing gown with hair stain and still look better than me. <laughs> Damn you, Michael. <laughs> and I was, I was excited to see them, you know, I was a, a fan, and, uh, we were being touted as the, the hot, hot young things, and so backstage I ran into Michael, and, and uh, he, he kind of looked drawn and, and tired, but still very handsome. And, and I can't remember the exact conversation because I get starstruck like anybody. And he said, "Oh, you know, good to see you again." And he said, "Oh, so I guess it's your year." And I said, "I, I don't want it to be our year. <laughs> I want everyone. I just, I'm just glad to be here, or something like that." But yeah, the, the months before they were just absolutely pillared in excess. And um, Michael, if not personally, then there was that spectre of it was being absolutely lambasted by elements of the Australian press that now go, oh, wasn't he just the greatest rock star? He got given and the band after the concert for life. And there seemed to be this um, uh, feeling that they were of another era. And it was they were, they were big and flash and, and that wasn't what rock and roll was nowadays. Now, kind of knowing what went on, the skullduggerous nature of what went on around that, um, I just think everyone coming out and talking about uh, Michael the way they do now, I think, yeah, just remember the way you behaved back then. You, you, some of you could hang your heads in shame, really. In terms of some context, uh, some of our listeners who have been following us closely would know we did an interview with uh, Nui Takoa uh, about a month or two back, and uh, it's a good episode there. You can go back and listen to that because it gives a little bit of a prelude of where Michael was at uh, at the time. Uh, the Australian tour wasn't sold out. I think that's part of the reason he did the interview there with Nui and uh, the record company and the promotions uh, company wanted uh, uh, to sell the remaining tickets there, and you know, you'll get a good deep dive in that episode about just where Michael was at at the time. Uh, but completed the elegantly wasted tour, uh, I think up until uh, might have been late September there in in America, uh, and yeah, as I said, some six eight weeks later they were due in Australia, and uh, the band had sort of come out. Obviously, or, well, they probably lived here, but they were sort of in in rehearsals. 
Uh, Michael had come out, flown in. He'd gone to rehearsals there out at the ABC studios. Uh, I think the the day on question, uh, Michael had sent a note to the tour manager saying they he wouldn't be a, uh, attending uh, that particular rehearsal day. Um, I guess in the lead up, he'd been out for dinner the night before uh, with his father and his wife, and uh, I think they had a, went to an Indian restaurant there. Uh, again, uh, Cal, I think, had said that Michael, and this was in post uh, interviews, that Michael did look a little bit run down and tired and stressed given the circumstances thereafter. Michael had that particular night, uh, or the night uh, before his passing, caught up with Australian actress Kim Wilson, former uh, Bo, uh, and her boyfriend, which sort of goes to show Michael uh, all of his exes seem to still be his current friends, uh, which is a legacy probably of the charm. On that particular sort of uh, night, you know, consumed various amounts of, of alcohol and took a few substances, and uh, he had already been uh, prescription medication that I'll elaborate a little bit later on, and I think back in those days, the cocktail of things like Prozac, which was a relatively new antidepressant, uh, combined with alcohol and other sort of things, was a bit of a swirling or cocktail of uh, substances that didn't really go well with each other. No, not at all. He didn't know how to take them either. He shouldn't have been taking them with alcohol and other yeah. stimulants as well. But why yeah. was he on these these antidepressants in the first place? We do know that now that he'd had a head injury back in um, early uh, 92 and, and still getting through that. Um, yeah. And also, like we've we've re- relayed quite a lot of the media pressure that he was getting um, for the onslaught of being with um, Sir Bob's wife, and it was relentless. Um, I- so yeah, his mental health. He he went to a doctor, and the doctor just gave him all these awful pills. And if you think about the uh, the timelines here, you know, ninety three was Inexcess's last studio album before Elegantly Wasted, so there was probably their biggest gap of four years between. Uh, official recording releases. Yes, they had a greatest hits thing they did and they toured a bit in 94, but they really had a two, three-year gap from each other. And you sense someone like Michael and through what Andrew had said to us on our interview with him that Michael loved hanging out with the band and made him feel a certain way. And um, I think Michael was a probably guy who, who really liked the structure of touring and recording. And having had a good couple of years in the UK, Without his NXS brothers and without maybe the the, the structure of uh, NXS life around him, uh, he did get caught up, you know, in some of the press stuff. I mean, there's a famous photo of him swinging at a, a press photographer and then ultimately going to uh, court for that. And you know, I think Michael, the last thing we associate as a as a sort of a, a, a description of him is violent. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's the most probably passive, loving, uh, calm guy. And the idea of taking a swing at a at a at a, uh, a press guy uh, with a camera up his nose was very uncharacteristic, but probably highlighted the stress and pressure he was under. Exactly, he was pushed. He was pushed into it. Can you yeah. imagine? You're you know you're trying to have this private life, or he, he'd managed to have quite a private life, even though he was out in the public. Yeah. But the the viciousness of the UK press. Yeah. At his door, one of his titles, isn't it, in one of his songs, that the dogs outside my door, up to mind, um, and, and even in his last um, album that he put together, you know, some of the words that he's put in there, he's 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 bringing a lot out. At well, yeah, side. it's at that same correct. It's at that same time he was with Andy Gill, you know, recording mm-hmm. and, and writing a lot of this material for what was going to be his sort of posthumous solo album, and 
the the lyrics of that particular album really are timed around '95 when all this stuff was going on, and uh, the lyrics are quite pointed. And uh, I think uh, Noel Rogers the other week said his solo album was quite sort of uh, angry and vengeful, whatever. And and the lyrics in this particular album, I wouldn't say are totally angry, but they are they're, they're melancholy. They are. Uh, they they have a sense of loss in them. They have a sense of desperation, alienation, all these particular things. But at the same time, you know, the one thing that probably can't tolerate or give Michael really a, a hall pass on, and, and that is drug use. And you know, I know it's sometimes cool to be seen like you know being on the drugs and you now Noel Gallagher and Liam talk about you know this this and this and everyone. And they've often said, I think around this time in the UK that everyone's on this and everyone's taken that. But Michael, you know, seemed to be at a point where he relied on them and had been on them for a long time. And when you combine the fact that he really was, you know, suffering from brain damage, you know, from his accident, and he, you know, was suffering from from, from, from some mental trauma from that, um, hard drugs, narcotics, illicit, uh, illicit substances, don't add any value, you know. The, the, and this is a salient point, and I'm not coming here to condemn Michael, but uh, they didn't add any value his thought processes that probably went through uh, ultimately on that particular night. And if anything, they probably help contribute to, you know, feeling down uh, and coming off highs and wanting to sort of balance things up a bit. And I think for that, that's just an important message I, I do want to get across because they didn't help him. No, they didn't. Hi. Yeah. saw them as rivals and um, they were so great. I mean, we were envious of uh, some of their grooves and and this beautiful baritone, mm. you know, and and this this guy who'd be flirting with your girlfriend uh, the moment you turned your back. He was just <laughs> he was so bold and mischievous. And we miss him. We really miss him because we used to, we have a house in France um, that we share, Edge and myself, indeed, all the band are down there. And we, so we, we, we spent the summers in France or we'd write down there and do things like that. And he was always around. And he, even now, all these years later, it's just there's like a seat at the table mm. that isn't there, you know? Your thoughts, you know, thus far, you know, what's your opinions of what we've gone through? Well, you know, uh, as I saw 97 happen when I first saw them come back, you know, on the uh, the famous um, Chris Evans show, um, the, uh, what was it called? The um, the Friday, what was it called? Thank God it's Friday. I think, I think that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, and he came on there and he looked so healthy and he looks amazing and he came out and he, you know, and and, and then read reports, you know, he'd been really looking at his fitness and he looked really buff and, you know, the start of that um, tour was amazing. But, you know, the guy was, what, 37 now? He mm. wasn't 27. You know, it was a grueling tour all around the States. He was having, you know, he got a baby. He really was like probably staying up late for those phone calls. And that's probably when the drug use was probably coming up a little bit more than normal as well and the depression. Yeah. And then hearing all these reports in the newspapers. 
Well, a lot of the times when someone, you know, does take their own life and there's so many people, and I think in Michael's case, so many people came out and spoke about it and uh, said, you know, he wouldn't have done that. And I know Paula probably um, didn't want to think that he would do that and, and leave the life of him and his child. But Those um, were the words they would No, they, 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 they wouldn't want to admit that was the, the, the case. And we'll, we'll go through the coroner's report later, but... You know, the events surrounding his last couple of months were quite vexed. You know, at one level, he was very optimistic. He was having meetings with Michael Douglas and potentially Tarantino about some acting options. And he was 37. He was probably looking at his life post in excess or just balance. Hayden, can I just reference what Michael Douglas actually said? He said right. Michael could sell popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> right. Not as an usher, but uh, but as a movie star. Right? Exactly. Right. Okay, cool. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so I think yeah, on one level he was having some of these meetings and he was obviously in LA a couple of weeks before um, flying to Australia. He did that famous little get up and impromptu gig there at uh, uh, at the Viper Bar there with um, a friend of the podcast, Danny Sabre and a few other people uh, there. And you know, on one level he probably, like a lot of us, when you are living your life, you are planning for the future. And I think, you know, Bono probably did get it right when he said he got stuck in a moment you can't get out of. And um, again, we'll explore, you know, the reasonings afterwards. But yeah, I guess there was pressure coming on him. I know Chris Murphy, uh, who wasn't involved with the band at the time, uh, in his book and through subsequent quotes said, look, I would have uh, told him to cancel the tour. Don't do it. You run down. It's not sold out. Don't come and do it if it's not sold out. Um, and they didn't have that sort of management there in Australia at the time. They had Martha in New York. But um, again, uh, there was probably various pressures through the band, various pressures through himself, various pressures through 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 Paula being a parent, you know, through his career scope. Um, and he was, you know, they had the weight of the world probably on his shoulders at that time, B. Yes. And let's not forget that he had a, a girl in America as well called Erin, who yeah. had actually stopped their relationship too. So, mm. you know, that was another thing that um, it was just upsetting to him. She was um, a light in his life that um, he, he loved having around. And, uh, mm. you know, she'd packed his case and said, no, go, mm. go back to Paula and uh, the baby. They come first. Mm. Yeah. Lots. Mm. In the aftermath and through uh, various conversations that, you know, we've not just had uh, through our podcast, but through just research and, and listening, is that Michael was such a people person and I don't think he liked being alone. You know, Greg Parado said, you know, on our podcast a few weeks ago, oh, what are you doing? Come on over. No, I can't afford nuts. All right, I've already got you a ticket. I think Michael always wanted to be around people. I don't know if he liked silence. I don't think he liked being alone. I don't think he liked thinking and, and being left left to his own devices and even the night in question when he passed both uh kim and andrew were there from i think 11 at night till five in the morning and thinking that you know only some four or five hours later he passed he was on the phones on various calls in between i think he hated solitude and particularly that's where the demon started to to to, to go and he would think and analyze and probably get into a little bit of a mental rut and um i guess you know that's in line with some of the coroner's statements but as a fan looking forward to the band touring, I do remember at the time in Australia, there was definitely that part of that three, four year pushback where 
they were seen as sort of damaged goods or part of the heyday. And we had this sort of 1995, 96, 97 big mass alternative movement, both globally with bands like, uh, I guess, uh, the Spashing Pumpkins and, and Faith No More and some of these bands and the Chili Peppers, you know, breaking through. And and then we had local acts in Australia like Powderfinger coming through and Spiderbait and uh, UMI and there were these other sort of uh, uh, preeminent bands and then the big day out came in and there was this push away from mainstream acts into a bit more of the alternative scene. And uh, every new generation wants their own thing to covet. Uh, and, and some of those bands are now de rigueur in terms of in the uh, zeitgeist. I think it was hard for In Excess at that particular time and sort of coming back to Australia, they weren't um, arriving to a country that was 120% eager to see them. I mean, the whole tour hadn't sold out. I mean, some concerts had, some hadn't. But I just think if the band were to tour sort of now or in any scenario, they'd be such a celebrated band, be such a sort of legacy act. Look, like look at Duran Duran at the moment, they're being celebrated and eulogised everywhere they go around the world. You two at the moment are in, you know, in Las Vegas doing a residency. Their time would have come where the worm turns and you go from being vibrant, a historic act suddenly out of favour to celebrated, uh, legendary, can't touch them act. And I think that would have occurred if they had have just said hung around long enough at some particular point. Because the thing about great music is it's the songs that survive be. Why are the Beatles you know, new song aside, still a fascination. Well, it's the songs. Mm. You know, the songs out will outlive the Beatles themselves. They already outlived two of the Beatles. I remember being in a record store, a large record store in Australia. This must have been 1989. And there was there were posters for this group I'd never heard of before called Inks, Ink Six, Ink Six. And I was like, what? The, the, like, number one, I'm like, these graphics are incredible. And what are you playing? I'm like, Inksis, I've never heard of this. They, they were all over. It was, it was a two-story record store. I was looking up. All I saw was Inksis and these incredible black and white and red graphics. And then they were playing this music. I was like, what the hell is this? Who's the singer? They're like, it's in excess. I'm like, who's that? I never heard of him. Of course, it was Australia. I was, of course, it was Michael Hutchins. I took so much from Michael Hutchins. And Strange Currencies is the song. I went back to him and said, listen, man, I lifted directly from you, especially the middle eight. This is you. That guy, that guy contains such sweat such charisma he more than any singer i think of our generation could pick up a room in one hand and drop them on their head without even without even thinking about it he was just astonishing and i met him through bono uh, they were very close friends and uh and bono and i both took a whole lot from michael he was yeah. an incredible inspiration Interesting. And it's interesting thinking about Michael because he was from that same scene that gave us Nick Cave and and all of those bands that emerged from that. Um, and yet they took it in a more pop direction and got the global international success pretty, well, in, in, in some ways, pretty quickly. No, because probably because of Michael's amazing charisma. No. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, Great song. they had an ins insanely brilliant songwriter. I think the keyboard guy was the one who did most of the heavy lifting there, but, but that, that was a great band. 
but he was just incredible. And I, so I, I, I had the opportunity actually before he passed away. I, uh, I was like, thank you for that song. I, 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 it was a new way for me to sing. I didn't use that kind of soul Motowny kind of thing. And it's odd to me that it came through Michael for me to return to that, especially with Mike and Bill in the band uh, and uh, the references that they pulled in. But it was, it was a new way of singing for me. I think, you know, getting back to the sort of the crux of it there, you know, Michael got off at the, I remember getting off on the uh, the plane, walking through uh, customs into the crowd. He had his little trolley there and media said, any surprise, he goes, there always is. I just think, as I said, uh, everything that led up to it, and we'll go through things in a moment, but he, he, he really wasn't in the best sort of position. He wasn't on cloud nine. And, you know, let's not forget, yeah, and then we're not blaming, you know, Noel Gallagher here, but going to the UK six months earlier and, and being called has-beens, you know, affected him because he was sensitive and he didn't want to be a has-been. He didn't want to be a heritage actor and he didn't want to be irrelevant. Uh, he, he always wanted to be respected, you know, and I think we all do in some way. Um, and that was quite an embarrassing thing to be put through. Yeah, you're right. And he was such an intelligent man, very deep thinker. And like you say about that not being alone, that's when you spiral down into things and you start thinking about your life a little bit more. But if you've got other people in the room to talk to, then you can bounce off those ideas. Yes, you're right. They should have had probably more of a rest um, in between. And Michael should have had the opportunity to have gone solo for a few years and then come back. I'm sure he would have like just needed to get that out of his system. But Murphy wasn't uh, managing them at that time. So he wasn't being held back by any management, I should have thought. Um, it was, would have been the band um, wanting to have um, done the album. Well, I think he had plenty of time in that two years to, to get the album out. And what's quite surprising is that between sort of 95 when that uh, stuff was being recorded with Andy Gill and all the other sort of guest artists, there was enough time to probably get it out. But, you know, let's not forget Kirk saying on our episode that Michael wasn't completely happy with everything that he recorded. You know, we think it sounds fantastic, but artists are, pe- are peculiar people. Even Prince has got, you know, a thousand songs in his uh, vault there that have never seen the light of day that probably are better than most others. So, but then, you know, he did go in 96 to Canada with Andrew, just suddenly did the demos, failingly wasted. So maybe just time moved and then he did come back to Australia for the Aras in 96 and then he did, you know, have the child and the baby. So, you know, life yeah. maybe got in the way and, and he yeah. wasn't quite ready to, to put the solo record out. Um, well, I just want to reference just a few of the songs from the um, the album, which mm. is uh, Michael Hutchins. Um, it's uh, one of them, you know, we had to slide away. Um, one of us was put the pieces back together. Mm. It's that song in itself, you know, he just wanted to reinvent himself. He's asking that. Um, another one was Don't Save Me From Myself. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. Yeah. 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 Great song, but, yeah. What a, but what a sad title. A sad title. Well, it's a sad. Mm. Yeah, it, they are good songs, yeah. but yeah, there's a sadness yeah. underneath. 
underneath yeah. them. And look, sometimes the, the great songwriting comes from a place of deep sadness. I mean, you look at Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album with yeah. You Can Go Your Own Way. I mean, you see Stevie Nicks having to get up there every night with, with uh, uh, Lizzie Buckingham and sing that together. And what Lindsay is basically saying to her when he looks at her during the live you know, performance, that song is, you know, you can go your own way. And the lyrics are basically saying, off you go. Imagine having to get up and play that three, four, five hundred times, you know, with your ex-partner looking at you singing it. Um, not all songs come from a place Sure, they might be going ka-ching, ka-ching after a while, <laughs> well, it did, it did, well, it did do pretty well. It's now on a car out here in Australia, so, you know, <laughs> you know each each of their own. But, um, but yeah, on a, on a serious level, yeah, those songs there, you know, come from a, a place probably of inner torment and uh, a lot of them things I just want to go and slide away. I mean, it is an epitaph type sort of soundtrack, and and maybe he didn't want to put it out because it it was you know maybe too close to the bone. Mm. And Michael's always been a little bit opaque and a little bit you know different with his lyrics. Not always been as literal and and as as as, as say midnight oil. He he was always uh, a little bit opaque with uh, the meanings behind his lyrics and things. But um, I tell you um, what, th- this is another reference to Robbie last night that um he he was suppressed with his music with Guy Chambers. Jane Guy Chambers was all about getting the hits out, yeah, and making it yeah. poppy and making it relevant. And he was like, I just want to put out a karma police, but all I can do is a karma chameleon. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's might have been where, you know, Michael was sometimes, you know, I want to get out these um you know these really deeper meaningful songs or things that mean more to him but yeah we're just going to put out you know something a bit more poppy um to get into well look i think michael was always uh as evidence in the miniseries michael always probably admired nick cave and um uh, he uh, obviously has a relevance to this podcast but uh michael was part of a commercial rock band that had great commercial and pop success uh, with enough veerings and, and, and leanings towards uh, some of the alternative side of things with their music as their career went on. But the street cred of uh, what you would call um, guys like Nick Cave and uh, Neil Young, who, you know, and the Velvet Underground, who who never historically would be commercial sellers but had street cred, was probably something Michael really uh, craved for, you know, because of his uh, soap opera looks and his uh, sultry vocal persona. He was able to probably cross the the pantheon into the uh, the commercial side. Um, and I don't think he had a problem with it, but I think all all artists like to uh, have a little bit of a uh, an alternative side. Look at look at Brad Pitt and some of his movie choices. He's always in a lot of movies tried yeah. to make himself look <laughs> uglier than he actually is. Hello, <laughs> Fight Club, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, from that sort of point of view, um, I think the you know that album and where he was at at that time is is quite poignant in the sense that the lyrics and the words and the verses and the song titles probably do showcase uh, a lead-up of where he was at. Former Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek. The first time I saw him was on MTV. I was just completely blown away. Michael reminded me of, in a way, reminded me of Jim Morrison. The Australian invasion had happened. In the in the recent tour, yes. uh, I believe that you uh, sang a tribute to Michael Hutchins. Oh, yeah. You did okay. Need You Tonight, which is a great NXS song. And, of course, you had a relationship yeah. with Michael uh-huh. back in the day. Is, was it strange you doing that on stage to sort of revisit that period of your Aww. life? <laughs> um, was it... Uh, I wouldn't say it was strange. I'd say it was beautiful and amazing. Every night, every, every night, we toured all of UK, Europe and Australia, and every night when that beat kicked in, uh, I would shut my eyes and say, 
I know you're going to like this because I, I knew he would. And we didn't change anything with the song. We didn't change the key or do anything different. It's such a good song. Just yeah. sing it. And he was like my guardian angel for that tour. Definitely. He kind of... Am I right in thinking? I don't want to simplify things, but I always got the feeling that he kind of introduced you to a slightly wilder life than you'd had previously. Would that be fair? Yeah. <laughs> So that was a fun time. It was, it was a great time. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was all sorts of things. Um, yeah, it wasn't just a great time. I was very, very sad when it, when it finished. But, yeah. yeah, he had an enormous impact on my life. Um, what was it like then? What, what kind of things would you do? What, kind of, what was a, a fun day out with Michael within the boundaries of legality? <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I could tell you. <laughs> well, even, even when it was kind of... I mean, I used to say it was like I had, I had blinkers on and then the blinkers came off because it was the right time in my life yeah. as well to kind of open up to the world and discover a lot of new things. But even when it was slightly on the wild side, he, he was always very tender with me. Um, you know, I was a little precious thing to him. So I, I, amongst the, the kind of headiness, uh, it was always, always very sweet. He had that lifestyle that's attended with rock music and rock stars and I think that is a, a memory that people have of him and something that will carry on with all of the wonderful music that his excess made. He really showed Australian bands that if you worked hard enough and you had the music, you could take it to the world and have it accepted on an equal level. And we held hands around the table. And gave thanks for all our blessings. First started listening to like, you know, rock music and stuff on in front row at a few of their concerts. I was actually supposed to go see them on Tuesday night down in Wooga. I've just followed them for a long time. I've really, really been pretty heartbroken this week actually. What did Michael mean to you? All right, B. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, going to the funeral side of things because this was sort of almost like another chapter in the whole sort of saga to a degree. You could appreciate that in Australia, uh, Michael and the band uh, suddenly were put into the spotlight uh, of uh, newsworthiness of what was going to happen. And like everything, the, the paparazzi, ironically, uh, came out big time, you know, chasing the band, chasing management, all those type of things. Michael's parents, uh, Patricia and, and Cal, uh, in a moment of unity, did get together. And I think Cal had suggested to uh, Patricia that uh, Harry and Miller, uh, one of those typical old Svengali managers, come on in and manage the affair. I think in Harry's book, and and uh, I'm going off his word here, but he didn't take a fee uh, for managing this particular, uh, I guess, circus, as he ultimately called it, uh, aimed to come in and, and be able to coordinate what ultimately was a public funeral with media involved and a whole bunch of things occurring. And I think for, for Patricia and, and Cal, um, you'd appreciate his parents would have been awful trying to put this whole thing together and be involved with this whilst grieving over the course of uh, what was only five days be between his passing and the funeral. Sometimes these things you might think might take a week or two, but there was only a five-day gap between Michael's uh, passing on the 22nd of November till the funeral on the uh, following Thursday, 
uh, occurred at St Andrews uh, Cathedral in Sydney. Can you remember back in the UK after finding out about it? Did you remember hear much footage? I guess with Paul there, there must have been some media blowback there. Yeah, no, it was awful. Um, Paula actually punched her best friend in the face when she found out and was screaming in the streets. Right. Paula was then put on a plane straight away to come to Australia, and we know that's like a twenty-six hour journey. Um, yeah. She was. Um, she was just, you know, drinking alcohol to numb the pain and the pressure. You can't imagine the pressure. I mean, she, you know, she was only a young thirty-seven-year-old herself, and um, we've all these children to think about, and she just you know, had her and a baby and a friend coming over. So yeah, the pressure was on then. And then there was all this awful, awful stuff about how Michael had died and just like, it was just, I didn't want to read it. It was awful, awful stuff. Well, look, let's be honest, you know, there was, there were a lot of reports about auto asphyxiation and that sort of mm. suddenly went wildfire. And again, there was no internet really in thrivance in those days, but uh, there was tabloids and uh, the tabloids probably were the uh, the, the tactile uh, uh, media splurge that was there rather than social media, it was literal media. Yeah. Um, and there was nothing founded about that other than the fact that he was naked and he was found you know, with a, a leather belt around his neck. Uh, with a class broken, but um, people drew conclusions and that formed a little bit of a narrative. And and in the absence of a coroner's report or facts or figures at the time, certain um, default positions of negativity get drawn to. Uh, and that, neg- that was awful when um, Cal went to the police station to pick up Michael's clothes and the only thing he was given was the belt. Right. Now, leading up to obviously to the funeral there, uh, I happened to uh, find myself going, as I've said in past podcasts. Uh, I felt like it was just sort of important. And then again, I was, I was 26 years old. I I, I just needed to go, uh, B. I, yeah. I, I lost a grandparent, you know, 10, 12 years earlier. But this was weird because I didn't really know Michael at all. You know, I think I, I knew the music and the band and things. But I decided to go and fly up there. And I would have uh, gone if I was here as well. I think yeah. as as a fan, um, and we know yeah. a lot of people that went as well, It's yeah. I think it would be a, a part of your healing for it. Yeah. Mm. Well, I flew up by myself. I went up there. I was able to get a discount through uh, the airline at the time. I mean, flights were pretty expensive back in those days. It wasn't yeah. cheap to, to fly around. But um, I was in my suit. I'd gone to work in the morning. I flew up. I had turned up at the uh, the funeral setting and there was just crowds everywhere. There was a, mm. a demarcation of, of fencing around. There was a bunch of you know security guys, et cetera, there. I was able to put my hand up with my boarding passes, as I've said on a past podcast, and uh, say, hey, you know, to one of the security guys, do you mind if I can get inside? Um, of which the guy paused, you know, spoke into his little, you know, little earpiece radio, came back and, and nominated me from about five deep in the uh, crowd to come around to the side of the church and go in. And as I said, there was a girl from Perth at the time who accompanied me in and I was able to get into the funeral. And it was great because, B, there was just all this white noise outside. There was just clouds everywhere. There were so many backpackers with disposable cameras who had smiles on their faces taking photos like it was sort of a a bit of a freakazoid show. And and maybe not smiles on their faces, but it was was what I would say was an insincere atmosphere outside. Mm Mm-hmm. You could see the coffin was literally in the hearse and there were guys standing there for, for, for about 10, 15 minutes and 
it just felt, you know, it felt just really odd. Um, and I didn't want to be a part of that. Thankfully, getting inside the church uh, not long after the, the funeral did sort of start. And um, I do have a little bit of rundown for the funeral. I just thought, you know, for people who, uh, again, this is a deep dive, I would probably just sort of give a bit of an idea of how the, the service sort of played out. But um, I do remember that uh, there was a reverend by the name of Bo Jobbins, who was the dean uh, of the St. Andrew's Cathedral, and he was sort of the the guy commissioned with uh, running the, the funeral itself. I know uh, initially he did his sort of greetings and then did sort of his scripture sentences that were sung by sort of the choir, etc. There, I won't attempt to sort of replay them. There was the sort of the Lord's Prayer and things. And then, you know, there was sort of the remembrances where – uh, I guess as sort of a, a sub host or whatever there, Richard Wilkins, who was a friend of the band for many, many a day. And a lot of people would know Richard from uh, his time here in Australia hosting MTV and still on TV now. He sort of read out the eulogy. The way the church was set up there, I was sort of around to the side and around. I couldn't quite see what was going on. I could, there was a TV screen above me and I was sort of thinking of it like, the, the, like Italy, like the shape of a boot. It was a bit like that. I was around to the boot side of Italy, maybe in the Rome section, um, and the service was in the uh, uh, Venice section, so to speak, uh, of the shape of the church. Richard spoke very, very well. They uh, were able to – oh, he was able to, you know, I guess, um, you know, tonally, you know, reflect the mood of, of the occasion. Uh, being a journalist, as I said, he went back uh, quite a while with the band and um, I guess he represented uh, somebody who could sort of uh, coordinate um, the ceremony along with the uh, the reverend. They did uh, go to Nick Cave, who was Michael's great friend. And as I said earlier, you know, from the uh, the days of uh, the punk rock scene here in Australia, uh, Nick, as a lot of our listeners would know, has done very well overseas uh, in uh, the UK, particularly where he lives. Uh, and was a great friend of Michael's. And I think they were both godfathers to their respective children. Uh, he went into play uh, Into My Arms, which was a uh, probably his biggest song he ever had uh, at that particular time, uh, a song that uh, uh, he, he was happy to play, but he just didn't want to be filmed and he didn't want that exploited. Uh, he didn't mind the audio being heard. Uh, he just wanted um, not to have it sort of, you know, monetized and filmed and things. I heard that um, he had to pay a lot of money for that not to be. Um, displayed actually, right. um, even though that Kel had uh, made words with people to say don't film it, he still mm. had to pay out a handsome sum just yeah. to not that bloody media yeah. again. Well, I, again, just sidetracking a bit. I remember outside there was a, a guy called Gary Wilkinson who was a sports journo from Sydney who was the uh, sort of it was like a felt like a sports event. You know, it was it was he, he and a lady called Anne Forward were had this sort of uh, almost like sports desk outside who were sort of hosting the broadcast because it went live on Channel 7 in Australia, um, which was fine and they needed to have people out there giving it a context. Um, but, yeah, you know, if, he, if, if Nick had to pay, so be it. Um, that was the case. Halfway through the song, though, above me, literally above my head, up on the balcony, there was a, a guy known as uh, the Serial Pest, uh, Peter Hoare, appropriately surnamed, decided to grab a uh, a tie and uh, put it up to his neck in a yanking motion. Uh, and he apparently went into the church the day before and stashed the tie. Uh, and uh, I think it was an open day. So the public and the media, well, the media could go in, but they weren't, you know, having to prove accredited media. So I believe that's how he got in the day before. He was quickly accosted by security uh, and as a result, uh, taken out. Uh, but to Nick's credit, he kept playing B. Didn't miss a note. Uh, was obviously in the zone and kept playing. Uh, I do remember the shrieks of public around me. Um, a light fitting had smashed 
uh, and glass had come down near us, but thankfully it didn't hit anyone. But again, probably the start of the circus of the day. Semblance was restored soon later where tributes came from uh, Andrew Ferris, who, who got up and spoke, uh, Tina, uh, sister, got up and spoke, uh, and Rhett got up and spoke. Rhett was quite humorous in the sense that he related the, the ugly wallpaper of the uh, place where Michael passed a bit. Uh, it was very unlike Michael. The choir came back in not long after with uh, the ministry of God's word. Uh, and the psalm was sung by the choir. Uh, there were some Bible readings, uh, etc., by the reverend. There was a few more uh, little hymns and some standing, and I guess that went on for a little bit of time. Again, some more prayers uh, and some graces and some blessings. Uh, and then they went to Never Tear Us Apart, uh, which the part where the band and uh, I guess Rhett and maybe one or two others carried the coffin outside uh, with the mourners uh, following out. And not long after, B, as the coffin went into the uh, the hearse, all the rains came from uh, from uh, afar and uh, the massive tropical sort of, because it was a very tropical sort of eerie day, but the, the storms there followed uh, not long after. Um, I guess on the way out, there were some very prominent celebrities that were probably at the funeral that, um, you know, uh, probably bear mentioning. There was Peter Garrett uh, from Midnight Oil and some band members. There was Linda Evangelista, Hel- Helena Christensen, uh, Tom Jones was there, uh, Kylie Minogue, obviously Paula herself, and, and many others that probably, uh, you know, if you do your research, you'll probably find were in attendance uh, at the funeral. Yeah, so Bono had got in touch with um, Paula with his condolences and also mentioned that um, he would be doing a tribute song for Michael um, because he was on tour at the time. Yes. Mm. So on the day when we got there, there was this massive, you know, bouquet, I'm talking like a thousand almost of tiger lilies that was uh, uh, front and centre there. If you do go to YouTube Live in Mexico, I think it's around – uh, between November 23rd and 30th, but it's the Live in Mexico gig. There's a couple of songs there. Um, there's a song called Gone uh, by uh, U2 that uh, there's a reference. Uh, there's also a version of All I Want Is You where they break into Never Tear Us Apart. And there's also more of a spoken reference to Michael on the song One where he dedicates the song to Michael that night. And it's it's very inspiring and it is very tasteful and I do love it. So uh, mm-hmm. you're right about the uh, the U2 uh, acknowledgement, Pete. Yeah, yeah. And um, we had um, Bono bring a book out, didn't we? And he was saying that he had had an estranged um, relationship with Paula and Michael because of their drug use yeah. and they didn't want any of that. But um, I, I've, I've read a few books um, where Bono and Ali got in touch with um, Paula afterwards and um, they paid for Paula to go away on a holiday to get her head straight after the funeral and um, they looked after her in uh, Michael, you know, for mm. Michael really, which was really yeah. lovely. And so did Nick Cave. Nick Cave got in touch with her and, and, and said that he would like to write that song. You mentioned a minute ago about the fun- thunderstorm mm. and it only just cons- occurred to me because I know you're going to talk about it in a moment, that there was a little bit of a, a tiff with his mother and father. Yes. And, and, you, and you can't help but think that maybe that storm might have been Michael's rage at them Well, <laughs> by me, having a tiff in the car. Well, <laughs> Come on. 
sort this out. is this is this is quite a, a borderline episode, but maybe a little bit of levity uh, with time. At the time, it was probably not funny, but maybe in in, in post uh, mm. twenty six later's, there's a little bit of levity to be had. But uh, Harry and Miller, uh, I guess after the funeral, uh, he had a limousine and he was in the uh, the limousine with both Cal, Patricia. Michael's mother, mm. uh, and I don't know if their respective partners. I think Tina was in there as well. <laughs> Could have been, yeah. Yeah. But but one of the things that uh, did occur, they're going off to the crematorium, I think, on, on the day. But um, uh, it, it didn't go with that incident. I think uh, on the particular way in the in the uh, the limo, there was uh, a little bit of altercation with Patricia deciding to punch Kel mm. uh, in the limousine on the way to the crematorium for, uh, because. Uh, they had a bit of a, uh, a, a difference of opinion on something, and I think Cal replied with, "For fuck's sake, Patricia, that's my new crown." Uh, as his as his mouth uh, was bloodied, so yeah. he might have knocked a new t- knocked a, a crown teeth out. Used used the the rings on her finger to um, yeah. cause causing pain. Not nice, hey? I mean, no, I don't. But it, look, uh, it's one of those things that uh, I guess for, probably for Harry, who was overseeing the whole sort of thing. Um, I mean, there was still some. I mean, it, one of the more puzzling things is that of all the people to sort of try and monetize this event, this is probably the most interesting anecdote I can sort of share, uh, and that is that um, uh, a lot of the important thing uh, about this funeral that Patricia and Cal did agree on, and they said this to Harry, they said we don't want any dollar being made by anybody off this event, least of all ourselves. Yeah, and and I think that's really important. And I think for Harry and Miller, who oversaw the 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 uh, the uh, uh, the funeral for the family, um, I think they've all been dignified post Michael's life in the sense that uh, they've yeah, particularly in those early days, they were hounded for interviews, and the band themselves, particularly, all remained pretty quiet um, and didn't exploit the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the irony, though, is the uh, Reverend, okay, good old Reverend uh, Bo Jobbins there, uh, apparently uh, about a week later it was found out that the church had some old ladies selling tapes of the funeral. <gasps> yeah, and suddenly, you know, the the, the, the church came into a bit of cash. Um so, and the good old Reverend was uh, not backwards in coming forwards in promoting the church and a few different things there. So it almost sounds like Scientology, but not quite. I guess if I could indulge a little bit, that afternoon I remember going for a drink afterwards with that girl from Perth I met and we had a good little chit-chat there and I caught up with a mate that night and I went back and I just know historically I felt 25% better having gone and I think over the journey and over the years 
when you do go to a funeral, pay your respects and you do those sort of things, whether it's somebody you know in life or somebody who's important in your life, the great thing about funerals is that is that chance to share a common experience of grief with other people, whether you know those people, whether you know the person involved. If someone or something meant something to you and you can share grief in a collective sense like a funeral setting, it does help heal. Having since then, you know, I guess buried a parent and gone through those particular things, uh, the shared experience of grief yeah, is somewhat healing, B. Through our podcast, in a way, it has been a healing exercise for us, uh, doing this over the journey with you and just being able to keep the band's memory alive and doing something constructive uh, for people to share in. And, and you know, again, I, I thank all the listeners who, who do check us out every week, but every week this sort of heals a little bit, B, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that. It took me a long time to actually watch it on YouTube, the and the footage. For me, unlike you, I could stop and start it. You know, you were in the thick of it and hmm. God knows how you did get through it. But you're right, it has sort of healed a bit watching it, even though it's very painful. But sometimes you have to go through the pain to be able to release some of the upset that you have inside you. I don't mm. think any of us has still got a hole in our heart. I mean, Michael meant so much to so many mm. people. I mean, even to people he hasn't even, you know, weren't even alive back in 97. You know, he's, he's, he's loved by thousands of mainly women, thousands of people. But yeah, you're right. This podcast does aim to heal um, a lot of people as well. And uh, I just don't want it to end because I will oh. cry my eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we might go to Andrew Farris now, who has yeah. his views about uh, Michael and celebrating Michael. Michael was always excited by, you know, the unknown and flying higher, you know, as a, as a human and as an artist, he, you know, as a singer and everything. He just got better and better and better as he went along at it. And I think, you know, he was a complicated person too, but he was always impatient. And one of the things he never really learned to do properly was to play an instrument, which is what, you know, he, his voice and his his mind were his instruments really, and his charisma, you know. Um, great lyricist as well, very, very poignant, very direct with his lyrics, brilliant. And, but I would write lyrics too, but it was mainly my music skills and or whatever that we, he suddenly realized he could resource a lot of what I brought to the table. And really we're completely diametrically opposed as people. You know, I'm a bit slower. I don't mind being on the earth. I don't want to fly up in the ether. Um, that doesn't really interest me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more of a ground guy. Um, and so we were that opposite characters and personalities work really well for an excess because we were never competitive. You know, you see so many bands yes. where the people within the band sadly have lots of issues with each other. It's because often they get very competitive, you know, and even right towards the end of his life when Michael and I were talking about, you know, his own world and what he wanted to achieve, what we wanted to do as a band. He often, we laughed, you know, he laughed, we laughed, saying one of the good things about us is we were very different people. We didn't really want the same things all the time. And, and I think that was important because when we got together, whether it was socially or to work within the band, you know, we really came together on a, on a more professional level.
And also too, like, let's go through a little bit of the aftermath. I mean, you know, from November 27, after the funeral, over the next sort of 12 months, there was a lot of innuendo and, and lots of sort of, you know, differing, differing views. And Paula did have quite a famous interview there where she sort of probably couldn't reconcile the fact that Michael had committed suicide. And we understand why probably that view was thought. Also too, the band probably took over a year or two to come out and they did a very, very tasteful and, and very... Uh, measured interview with uh, with George Negus, and we may uh, find that publication added to our socials. But one of the compelling things I remember for that one is that the five band members were just sitting uh, around at a hotel in a sort of a courtyard area, and George was interviewing them. And there's two things I remember about the uh, the actual interview. One was Tim talked about the lesser known facts of mixing prescription drugs and, and drugs themselves, listen to drugs together and and just with mental health and, and just how that was probably sort of a, in hindsight a, a, a troubling thing, but not something at the time was always as well known. Uh, and also uh, at the end of the epitaph of the interview, it said the cost and fee for this interview was such and such the lunch and, and glasses of water or something like that. Uh. Um, so the band didn't do it to be exploitative. Um, I think we all know in the various uh, paragraphs in Chris Murphy's book, each band member went off to to grieve in their own way, uh, and Chris mm-hmm. also. And you know, how do you reconcile it all? How do how do each band member um, you know know exactly how, how how to deal with the time? I mean, let's just remember they they were literally in the recording, well, sorry, the rehearsal studio with the TV there because the cricket was going to be on, yeah. and they were practicing, and they heard it all really through that TV that. You know, there's no mobiles or digital media. They they were they were learning about this just like yeah. we were learning about it. Yeah, that's that's as as tragic as it is. It's they they tragic. they learn about it the same way in the same real time mm-hmm. as the public did. They weren't worded up or wised up on it at all. No, um, no. So that that's sort of significant in my memory of the time too. B. Yeah, very sad, and they all had to be uh, go off in their separate ways and weren't really able to speak to one another afterwards either, were they? For a while. It's very... No, that's right. Yeah, they needed that's each right. other. Mm. That's right. tribute this week to Michael Hutchins yeah. uh, with Andrew Farris on stage. It's actually been 22 years since we've lost him this week. What influence did Michael have on you as a, I guess, a member of a band and also a solo artist? Well, it's like before the NXS guys became good friends of ours, I mean, obviously I was a kid growing up, just starting to kind of like discover whether I wanted to play music, but but those songs, like when, when you know, I was a fan before. Before I was listening like Thieves and and before. But then Kick, when that came out, that was a seminal record across the world. Like it was a game changer in the, in sonically, and as far as people realizing all over, like that this was one of the most enigmatic, sexy frontmen of all time, and he had this kind of soul to him. It was rock, but it was very soulful. Um, 
and I and, and I was I was always just, I was think I was just kind of drawn to that kind of primal thing that he had in his voice, and that kind of uh, gaze that he would have like right through the TV screen that made it feel like he was looking at you, you know. Um, and I met him years ago at a festival right when we were first starting out and they were headlining this festival and we were like playing sometime in the afternoon and I just like stuck my head into their tent, you know, I was like, oh my God, I love you. Um, and then I would have never known that years later, you know, we would, Matchbox would be out playing with those guys and those guys would become our genuine friends. So that's, a, it's an honor to, to, to be able to have those guys to kind of, uh, as, as mentors. Alright, well, what I'd wanted to do, and, and it might be a tad boring this next little bit, but we hope it's factual and, and people really can understand this because it's probably not a document that people have read. So I'm just going to go through the coroner's report and just probably highlight the key findings. And look, it is pro probably bullet points that will help you interpreting. But um, I think, as I said, you know, the documentary that years later that Richard Lowenstein did on Michael, the Mystify one, was a great visual representation of probably what actually occurred uh, and, and an audio uh, representation that Michael just was in a bad way. Having said that, any major death of any nature will go through a coroner's report. And this was actually really important in my healing back in about 1998, B, uh, when this uh, you know report uh, came to light. So uh, I'm just going to read a, a little bit of the backdrop out, then I'll just get into the key points because I think there's some really you know, valuable, valuable information for our listeners. All right. On the morning of November 19, uh, sorry, 1997, November 22, a maid at the Ritz-Carlton uh, Hotel in Sydney, Australia, reported that a guest in room 524 appeared to be dead. He'd registered as Mr. Murray River, okay, four days earlier. Now, for those who don't know, Murray, the Murray River is a famous river in Australia. The band had a, a penchant for uh, false names. That's right. Uh, Yes, uh, but his real identity was Michael Hutchins of Inexcess. It appeared that he hanged himself naked using a snakeskin belt and a doorknob. He was 37. There was no suicide note. A toxicology report did indicate that alcohol, cocaine, codeine, Prozac, Valium, and other benzodiazepines were in Michael Hutchins' blood and urine. Beyond that, though, we were left with nothing but speculation and rumours. Now, Though the full coroner's report has been published, there are still plenty of questions, but we know a little bit more about the hours leading up to the death. To review, at the time of his death, Hutchins was involved in a terrible custody dispute with his former partner, Paulie Yates. The day he died, he learned that he would not be seeing his children anytime soon. The night before he died, Hutchins had dinner with his father, Kel. From 11pm on the night of November 21 to 5am on November the 22nd, he had plenty of drinks with a former girlfriend, Kim Wilson, and then boyfriend, Andrew Raymond, at the hotel. At 9.54am on the morning of the 22nd, he spoke on the phone with another former girlfriend, M Michelle Bennett. Because he seemed to be so upset, Bennett went to the hotel to calm him down, but couldn't reach him by knocking on the door or ringing the room. The maid subsequently found Hutchins at 11.50 that day. Here's the text of the coroner's report, which was released on February 6, 1998. Okay. I have received a complete uh, completed police brief into the death of Michael Callan Hutchins on November 22nd at the Ritz Hotel, Double Bay. I am satisfied that the cause of death was hanging. I am also satisfied that there was no other person involved in causing the death. The question of whether there the death was suicide or not has to be considered. The deceased was found at 11.50am, naked behind the door in his room. 
he had apparently hung himself with his own belt and the, the buckle broke away and his body was found kneeling on the floor facing the door. It had been suggested that death resulted from an act of auto-eroticism. Uh, However, there is no forensic or other evidence to substantiate this suggestion. I therefore discount that manner of death. With regard to the question of suicide, I have to be satisfied on a strong balance of probabilities before I am able to come to such a conclusion. There is a presumption against suicide. However, having considered the extensive brief, I am satisfied that the standard required to conclude that this death was in fact suicide has been reached for these following reasons. One, Michelle Bennett, a former de facto of the deceased, received two telephone calls from him on the morning of December 20, sorry, November 22nd. The first was on an answering machine, and Mr. Hutchins sounded drunk. During the second call at 9.54, the deceased commenced to cry, and according to Miss Bennett, sounded very upset. She was concerned about his demeanour and his welfare and told him she would come immediately. However, when she arrived at the hotel, she was not able to rouse him by knocking loudly on his door, nor by ringing him. She wrote a note and left at reception. Miss Bennett stated that Mr. Hutchins never expressed previous uh, inclinations regarding suicide. Number two, the deceased father, Callan Hutchins, dined with uh, him the previous night. The deceased was in good spirits, however, appeared very worried in regard to the outcome of a custody suit in London. Mr. Hutchins could offer no explanation as to why someone would take his own life. Three, Miss Kim Wilson and Mr. Andrew Raven were with the deceased in his hotel room from sometime after 11 p.m. all the way through to 5 a.m. According to Miss Wilson, the deceased appeared to want, them, uh, want both of them to remain with him to offer support if the result of his custody hearing was unfavorable. His mood was described as elevated, however, pensive when discussing court proceedings. All three persons consumed alcohol, including vodka, beer, and champagne, together with cocktails during this time. Whilst Miss Wilson and Mr. Raymond were in the room, Miss Martha Troop, Michael's manager, the deceased, the, sorry, the deceased person, the deceased personal manager, rang from New York. Then later at 9:38 a.m., she received via uh, voicemail a call from Michael Hutchins, in which he said, "Martha, Michael here. I, I've, I fucking had enough." She rang the hotel immediately and the telephone rang out. A further call was received at 9.50 a.m. on Miss Troop's telephone answering machine. The deceased sounded as if he was affected by something and was slow and deep. This call worried Miss Troop and spoke to John Mart, the tool manager for NXS, about her concerns. Mr. Mart refers to a note received from the deceased stating that he was not going into rehearsals uh, today. The rehearsal was to be the last one prior to the start of the tour and was quite important. Number five, Miss Paulie Yates provided a statement. She provided a background to the custody dispute between her and Sir Robert Geldof. She stated that she rang the deceased at some time prior to 5.38 a.m. on the 22nd of November, and he told her he was going to beg Geldof to let the children come to Australia. She had told the deceased that the custody matter had not been finalised and was adjourned until the 17th of December, and she would not be bringing the children out. Miss Yates stated that the deceased sounded desperate during the conversation. Number six, Sir Robert Geldof received two telephone calls from the deceased, first at about 6.30pm London time on evening of 21st of November. It was a short duration and Geldof asked the deceased to call back. The second call uh, received by Geldof about 5.30am on the 22nd of November Sydney time. This call was, some of, was of some length. 
Geldof refers to the deceased memory as being hectoring and abusive and threatening in nature. He refers to the deceased as begging to allow him to let the children come to, come to Australia. He did not sound depressed during the conversation. A friend of both Geldof and Paul Yates, Miss Belinda Bruin, confirms the substance of the conversation between the two. A statement obtained uh, from a Gail Coward, the occupant of the room directly next to Hutchins's room, alludes to her hearing a loud male voice and expletives emitting uh, from the deceased's room at about 5am. I'm satisfied that she was hearing the telephone conversation between the deceased and Geldof. Seven, and a statement obtained from the mother of the deceased, Miss Patricia Glassop, confirms her opinion that the deceased was in a depressed state. Number eight, in December 1995, Michael Hutchins was first prescribed prescribed Prozac by Dr. J. Boren at a London medical practitioner's establishment to treat a pre-existing depressive problem. He was last uh, so prescribed on November 1, 1997. A London psychiatrist, Mr. Mark Collins, was consulted by the deceased on October 17, 1997 in regards to a minor depression uh, being experienced by him. According to the doctor, there was no hint of suicidal thinking by the deceased. Number nine, an analysis of the report of the deceased blood indicates the presence of alcohol, cocaine, Prozac, and other prescription drugs. Findings. On consideration of the entirety of the evidence gathered, I am satisfied that the deceased was in a severe depressed state on the morning of the 22nd of November 1997 due to a number of factors, including the relationship with Paul Yates and the pressure of the ongoing dispute with Mr. Robert Geldof, combined with the effects of the substances that he ingested at the time. As indicated, I am satisfied that the deceased intended and did take his own life. I'm also satisfied that his debt is, is one in which nothing will be gained by holding a formal inquest. The identity of the deceased, the date, the place of death, and the manner and causes of death are clearly set out at the time, and the expense of holding an inquest is not warranted. Therefore, such will be dispensed with. May I offer uh, to the family of Michael uh, Hutchins my sincere condolences and their sad loss. Uh, Mr. Derek W. Hand, New South Wales State Coroner, February 6, 1998, in the suburb of Glebe. So be a little bit of a mouthful there. And, and I, I do remember reading this, you know, uh, not long after. And I think, pleasingly, it is very sort of thorough uh, in its uh, in its detailing and it's very factual. And, I, you know, it didn't resonate like the, uh, like the um, documentary, but it is something that I, I think um, people – should realise uh, and take for its literal uh, findings. Okay, yep. I hear it, um, but there's many of the books that I would suggest people read Tina's book and Rhett's book to find out even more information that was um, unearthed. Um, I just also would terrible like day. to um, mention that there's a couple of people that are very, very, very close to Michael today on this day and they are going to be visiting his um, gravestone with a bottle of champagne having a toast for for Michael so if you are <laughs> if you want to do something maybe light a candle or toast to Michael uh, a glass of champagne I know that that will be doing this afternoon for Michael lovely mm. Wish you were. By my side. By my side.
dark of night These faces, they haunt me But I wish you were so close to me Yes, I wish you were by All right, but it was a bit of a heavy, heavy, uh, heavy episode. Um, we hope people, you know, uh, get something out of it, and we hope that uh, whether it's informative, whether it's some of the factual stuff, or whether it's just, you know, highlighting uh, the loss of someone we, we really love and respect uh, on this particular day, that you can um, again heal and keep healing and uh, never forget. So, um, I guess we we will go out with a really the song that typifies the uh, the day and the occasion. We're going to go out with Into My Arms by Nick Cave, uh, and I'm going to say it's a goodbye from me. Before we go, we'd like to say thank you to the people that we've been able to um, include in the show and their contributions. Thank you to Jimmy Barnes, Tim Rogers, Bono and U2, Michael Stipe, Ray Manzarek, Kylie, Andrew Farris, Rob Thomas and Nick Cave. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and it's a goodbye from B. I don't believe in an interventionist God. But I know, darling, that you do But if I did I would kneel down and ask him Not to intervene When it came to To touch a hair on your head Leave you as you are If he felt he had to direct you And direct you into my arms Into my arms Oh Lord Into my arms Oh Lord Into my
like Christ in grace and love and guide you into my arms. Into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord, into my And you've been listening to In Access, Access All Areas with Hayden and B.